Hey everyone, it's Simi Shaw, and welcome to Trailblazers. Through this series, we bring you trailblazing by South Asians and for South Asians. We're the torchbearers, sharing the stories of the leaders and innovators lighting the way across the South Asian diaspora. Hey everyone, we're back on Trailblazers with season two, episode three, and today I'm so thrilled to be welcoming Rabia Chowdhury, attorney, advocate, and author of the New York Times bestselling book, A Non-Story. Rabia is also the co-producer and co-host of three podcasts, one of which, Undisclosed, has garnered over 360 million downloads with its focus on wrongful convictions and has led to the exoneration of nearly a dozen defendants. Rabia previously practiced immigration and civil rights law for over a decade before moving into the CVE policy sphere. CVE stands for Countering Violent Extremism. Her practice focus was asylum and family immigration and civil rights defense of Muslim immigrants against federal law enforcement agencies. In 2011, Rabia founded the Safe Nation Collaborative, a CVE training firm which worked on two fronts, providing CVE and cultural competency training to law enforcement, correctional and homeland security officials, and providing national security and CVE training to Muslim communities and institutions. She has worked closely with the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, the U.S. Institute of Peace, and several other prominent and internationally recognized policy-driven institutions. Before I let Rabia get to herself and we jump into the podcast, I do want to spend a little bit more time on why I followed Rabia for as long as I have. Many of you might have heard of Serial, which I personally consider the mother of all podcasts. It follows the story of Adnan Syed, a very close friend of Rabia's, who was convicted for murder in 2000. His story and the plot holes revealed in the podcast garnered national attention, but what many people don't know was that it was actually Rabia who first brought the case to Sarah Koenig's attention. Sarah Koenig is the host of the podcast Serial. In many ways, I consider that podcast to have set the tone for the power of this medium. And for that reason, I'm so honored to have a trailblazer like Rabia join me on the podcast today. So with that, let's get started. Well, thank you. I'm honored that you'd have me. And I think it's a great project. So I want to start at the beginning. You are obviously a multi-hyphenate as an attorney, a fierce civil rights advocate, and a best-selling author. What led you to pursue immigration and civil rights law for over a decade? Look, I'm in my late 40s, and I come from a generation of immigrant South Asians whose parents set expectations for what we were going to do with our lives. And the expectation in our generation was, you're going to go to med school. <laughs> <laughs> yep. What I really am is a failed doctor. Me, my sister, we both uh, were pre-med majors for three years. By year four, it was very clear we are not getting into med school. And I hadn't really considered law, but a very good friend of mine said, you know, she was had considered going to law school. And I thought, you know what, maybe I'll give it a shot. It kind of makes sense. I like to read. I like to write. I like legal issues. And I just took the LSAT on a whim. Wow. And I placed like, I think in the 92nd percentile or something crazy. And then I got offers from law schools for admission without even applying. And I thought, okay, this was meant to be. And so when I went to law school, my family was deeply disappointed that I was not going to med school. <laughs> but I was in law school when 9-11 happened. And so as soon as 9-11 took place, 
you know, a lot of folks from our community, South Asian community, American Muslim community, we were like really forced to reckon with the backlash. And without ever expecting or wanting to do civil rights or immigration work, I was sucked right into it because it was just the need of the community at the moment. Some people might not realize that at the time there was this new program, you know, the Department of Homeland Security began in that era. And President Bush at the time started something called special registration well before Trump's Muslim ban, you know, so there were 27 Muslim majority countries. And if you were a male immigrant from those countries, you had to go and register with Homeland Security. And many of them, many of those guys would literally not come back. They'd go to register and be arrested and be deported. I didn't intend on working in that sector, but that's how it started. Wow. And can you speak a little bit more to that? I know you were born in Pakistan and later immigrated here. How has your identity continued to shape your career and the work that you do? Yeah, I mean, I was born in Lahore, Pakistan. My family is Punjabi and my parents moved here. I'm the eldest. I was six months old. So really, I was almost born in America. <laughs> but, you know, my parents have always been, you know how it is. When you're first generation immigrants, my parents weren't trying to get politically involved and socially conscious. They're just trying to like settle Keep down. Keep their heads down. Their head down. And they also really freak out when they see that I'm politically involved. They really worry about that as immigrants, like what that would mean for our status here. But I think for me, what my parents did do was try to remain close to a South Asian community. The first community we kind of were part of is like, I don't have a lot of memories of it, but you kind of make up memories because of the stories you hear. We lived in Northern Virginia in this apartment complex, and it was all kinds of South Asians. It was like <laughs> Sikh folks, and there were folks from Bangladesh and this and that. They were all family to each other because they didn't have anybody else back in the 70s. But then we moved out of that area and we kind of connected to other Muslim communities. So it was always like our identity as South Asians, Pakistanis, Muslims was always really important for us. And we were the kids who weren't allowed to spend the night at anybody's house. We took lunches to school that really embarrassed us and smelled up the cafeteria. And my mother would show up at school events wearing shlarakamis and you know all that kind of stuff. You couldn't escape it. And I'm glad we didn't. It's an important part of my life. Yeah. It's always been amazing to me how much... South Asian immigrants tend to congregate in these small communities across the United States. I mean, I grew up in Atlanta and I grew up in a very robust South Asian community and experienced a lot of the same things you did. And I think now I have developed a greater appreciation for it than I had then. But it's, <laughs> yeah. it's nice to be able to kind of maintain those roots in that way. They really needed each other at the time, right? They came here. They have limited language skills sometimes, no family. I mean, I've heard so many stories and they're all your uncles and aunties. So this uncle's car broke down. So that uncle loaned him the money and that auntie babysitted for you. I mean, that's just how they managed the first few years here. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think it's great that it's able to translate to future generations where maybe it's not as much out of necessity, but there's just that natural inclination because we saw what it did for our parents when they first came here. Yeah. Yeah. So something that you touched on that I thought was interesting, that's a conversation that's come up in various people that I've spoken to is this whole concept around keeping your heads down, getting your work done, maintaining and building like a very peaceful, quiet life. And I know that, you know, yeah. you've said before that people have called you obnoxious or called you aggressive. And you feel like they believe that because it goes against the grain of stereotypes of Muslim women. Yet you are very bold, you're very passionate, you're very outspoken. How have you worked to embrace that? First of all, I know I think the function for most of our families, for them, success was defined as financial success and education, right? Like get your education, be financially successful, get married, of course, because if you don't get married, that's your failure. <laughs> uh, 
and raise some families. But of course, it took a couple generations to realize you can't even really do all that fully unless you become a part of the fabric of this nation in more ways than just having jobs here. For me, what's been interesting in the last 15, 20 years is after 9-11, I ended up being an inadvertent Muslim advocate trying to defend our communities, this and that. And by nature, <laughs> I am kind of an assertive person. I mean, guess that's who I am. I would temper it in public. But then there were things that just made me so angry, like, you know, rage would fuel me on certain things that it just comes out. And the interesting thing is most of the people who have trouble with that part of my personality are either Muslim or South Asian. It's our own community that says, you're not representing women from our community the way we want you to. The broader spectrum of the American population is like, oh, wow, look at that. I mean, like, we didn't expect this from somebody who looks like her, but wow, okay, she's got that too. I've learned that authenticity is the most important thing. If that's just who you are, be who you are. Yeah. That makes a ton of sense and is honestly really inspiring. And I'm curious, obviously, you said that a lot of the motivation for you to even find your way into being an advocate and activist and attorney was a product of 9-11 and the impact that you saw on your community. I imagine that working as an immigration attorney, you experienced many emotional moments. Are there any particular cases or moments that really stick with you to this day? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think the one that was really, I mean, there's a lot of them, but I think the one that was really seminal in kind of impacting my career choices going forward was I was working with a local interfaith organization in Connecticut. I lived there for about six years. And we were very concerned about police surveillance and, you know, reports that come out of like mass police surveillance of Muslim communities. So this organization came up with the idea that what we should do is engage law enforcement. Like we should talk to them, do some diversity training, get to know them. We're doing all of this. We spent maybe a year doing this. And I mean, federal law enforcement, local law enforcement, everything's lovey-dovey, whatever we're trying to do it. Okay. At the same time, I'm, a, I'm an attorney and I have clients. And one of my clients was an imam of a local mosque. I was handling his immigration. It was pretty straightforward. The mosque was sponsoring him to be an imam here. And I get a call from him saying that he had just been released after like being held for 12 hours by a joint terrorism task force in which they pressured him to basically spy on everybody in the mosque, like spy on the congregants, the worshipers who are coming to the mosque, give them lists of names and this and that. And if he didn't do so, they would have him deported. And I was in such a conundrum because on one hand, I'm his attorney and this is privileged if I go public with this, it could hurt his case, get him deported. But at the same time, these are the same agencies that we're trying to do like lovey-dovey, get to know each other work. And it's so, <laughs> but this is what they're doing wow. you know, at the same time as we're trying to build these. And so I decided that the best course of action was to tell every leader in the community wow. and we did. And so that really changed the course of my work because I realized that we just were not well equipped to deal with state powers, especially FBI Joint Terrorism Task Force. And it was better to be really public about what they were doing with our community instead of trying to play nice. And in terms of playing nice, how is the work you've done in terms of countering violent extremism? I know you founded the Safe Nation Collaborative, a training firm that worked in partnership with a lot of these law enforcement agencies and institutions like the U.S. Institute of Peace. What was the interaction there? How is that tied to working with institutions that have perpetrated a lot of this harm in the past? So what we're talking about, you know, all of these policies arose in the Bush era 
where the position of federal law enforcement towards Muslim communities was almost completely a counterterrorism perspective. That's just how we were viewed. Their only relationship to us was through this lens of counterterrorism. And of course, there was a lot of pushback from Muslim leaders and civil rights organizations. And so when the Obama administration came to power, they said that, you know what, we want to create a new framework called countering violent extremism. And the problem, this framework is really difficult to understand because it's not really a thing. It's like an idea. And the idea is this, how do we help local communities basically protect their most vulnerable people from being like recruited? And this was like 2009, 10, 11, 12, when unfortunately it was happening, you know, like you did have organizations like Al-Shabaab and Al-Qaeda and others really heavily recruiting online. And some people, sometimes young people, would end up going to Syria. People with mental illness would end up getting recruited by these idiots. It wasn't happening on a huge scale the way that it necessarily needed billions of dollars and an orange threat level, but it was happening. And it was happening to the extent that, you know, there were parents who would be like, I think my kid is communicating with somebody he shouldn't be communicating with on their smartphone. What do I do? Like, if that parent picks up a phone and calls the FBI, that kid's going to get arrested, right? So they wanted, so the Obama administration wanted to create a framework. Well, maybe that wouldn't happen, where there would be some kind of interventions by community people, by whatever. And that's what CVE became. But so I got interested in all of this first through the lens of law enforcement training. Okay. Because I realized, especially when that happened with my client, at the same time, there were articles coming out about the anti Muslim training that the Pentagon was getting. Uh, DOD was getting, Homeland Security was getting. And then I was like, well, who's doing proper training on Muslim communities and Muslim history in America? And there wasn't a single organization I found. It was really these cottage industries of Islamophobes had just stepped into this vacuum and were making millions, by the way, doing this. So that's why I found a safe nation, because I said, on one hand, I want to train local law enforcement. I didn't really want to work with feds. I just have to have a relationship with local Muslim communities and understand who they are and how long they've been here and all these things. And I also wanted Muslim communities to understand how to interact with law enforcement while protecting themselves. So the training was for both law enforcement and Muslim communities. I also wanted to train Muslim parents about, look, this is the kind of stuff that can happen online. So you got to be careful with your kids. They're predators. They're, they're essentially predators that are preying on vulnerable Muslims. So that's evolved directly into that kind of work. But the more work I did in CV, what I realized was year after year, the FBI was not naming jihadis, al-Qaeda people as the number one threat to the homeland. They were naming white supremacist groups. Interesting. Yeah. Year after year, the FBI is like the greatest threat to the homeland are white supremacist, violent extremists. And so anyway... Now we've seen that really come to bear in the last couple of years. I'm sorry, I know it's a very long answer, but that was the journey. No, it's super interesting. And I guess I'm curious what your thoughts are on the evolution of that, because obviously in the post 9-11 world, there was a lot of attention placed on the Muslim community and not in a productive fashion. And now in terms of that interaction between law enforcement and communities, we're seeing that with the black community really come to life now and over the past year. And obviously, it's been happening for decades. I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that and how you feel progress can actually be achieved. Yeah, look, black Americans have been telling us this for a long time. Many of us have not paid attention. And as immigrant communities, we have other issues that are on the front of my mind. I remember after 9-11, I went and I gave a talk at a local mosque that was a black mosque. A very large percentage of American Muslims are black Muslims, you know, that are black Americans. And I remember when I gave the talk, 
they were like, listen, sister, we just want to tell you something. We understand some of these post 9-11 concerns that the immigrant Muslim community has, but our problems are different than your problems. As black Muslims, we have different problems. And this is what they were talking about. They were talking about the racial injustice. They were talking about Jim Crow. They were talking about police violence. And it was something that we, honestly, our South Asian communities knew nothing about. We have plenty of anti-black racism built into yep. our belief system and our you know social structures and everything. What we're seeing, what we've seen in the last couple of years is that all of that white, racist, violent, whatever you want to call it, it's never not been there. It's always been there. It's literally been latent since the Civil War, right? Yeah. They just suddenly got a political pass. They actually, you can be public about this. You can come out as Nazis and Confederates now. You can do that. And I think a lot of America, especially Americans who are not Black, have been shocked by it. But I can guarantee that Black Americans are not shocked by right. it. They've known all along. Some of the work I did with USIP, US Institute of Peace, was I wanted to look at ideologically extreme movements in different faith communities. So I studied Buddhist extremists, Buddhist violent extremists in Sri Lanka, wow. and then Sunni Muslim ideological extremists in Pakistan. And I'll be honest with you, just switch out the actors. They're all the same. They all have the same kind of belief systems. They're all very paranoid. They believe in conspiracy theories. So whether they're Hindu extremists, Buddhist extremists, Muslim extremists, Jewish extremists in Israel, or white Christian evangelical extremists here, they are programmed in very much the same way. Interesting. Wow. I wonder if that'll make the tactical approach in the future, not exactly the same, but allow it to be considered a little less disparately than it has in the I mean, past. America first has to acknowledge it's a natural problem before they can do something about it is the thing. Yeah, well, I guess we'll see what progress gets made, especially now that we have a new administration at the helm, one that is hopefully, based on what you've been saying, familiar with the issue and how to bring some of these initiatives back I do want to spend some time, obviously, on what I mentioned in the introduction around your work in bringing forward the case with your dear childhood family friend, Adnan Syed. He was convicted of murder in 1999, and he inspired the first season of the groundbreaking podcast serial, which covered his case. But again, what a lot of people don't know is that you were the one who first approached the media and who first approached Sarah Koenig. I'm just curious what motivated that decision. Yeah, just to clarify, Adnan is not my childhood friend. He is my, my younger brother, and they have been best friends since they, they were, were kids. So he was kind of like a little brother to me. I was in law school when Adnan was arrested. Adnan was obviously 70 years younger than me at the time. Well, you know, after Adnan was arrested, I was there during the trials, the conviction, the direct appeals. And I just saw it all unfold firsthand. And I was shocked throughout because a lot of immigrants tend to have a lot of faith in the U.S. justice system. We're like, oh, it's not like back home. We just don't realize the huge gaps and how broken the system really is. And at that time, because again, that was when everybody was going to med school, I was like one of the only person, we didn't even know any lawyers from our community. We just didn't. So we had to just hire whoever was recommended and then collect the money for it. What happened was, you know, I spent 10, 12, 13 years basically going through the appellate process with Adnan and his family until, and then we had had a post-conviction appeal hearing in 2012 or 13, I can't remember. And I testified at that because the person who had found the alibi witness that Adnan had asked his lawyer to follow up with, and she never did. And so after he was convicted, I had found her. Her name was Asia, Asia McLean. McLean. I a, yeah. yeah, I got an affidavit from her. But what happened was 
when it came time to file the appeal, she refused to testify. So I testified in lieu of that and explained how I found her and how she wrote this affidavit. But I could tell, I knew we were just not going to win. I mean, we had lost two appeals at that point and I was just really distraught. And I just thought, you know what, maybe we need to get like a journalist involved, somebody who can like get people to talk, who can look at this from a different lens because lawyers have very narrow lenses. Like when they look at an appeal, they're like, oh, these are two issues we're going to pursue for 15 years and that's it. We're not going to reinvestigate. But the case needed reinvestigation. And so I found Sarah Koenig, who had written for the Baltimore Sun back in the 90s. And I said, I don't know if you're interested in something like this, but, you know, I have this case that I'd be happy if you'd look at. And a week later, she was down talking to me in my office. Wow. So that's how that turned into serial. Wow. And did you ever expect his case to be thrust into the public eye in the way that it was? No. No. I mean, the thing is, you know, when Sarah Koenig showed up with a mic, I thought if this turns into something, it'll be like a one hour This American Life episode. But the truth was, I just didn't care what they did with it. What I wanted was for her to investigate the case and find me some new evidence to get me a new appeal. But after like 10 or 12 months, she's like, Robbie, we're going to create a series around this, a podcast series. And I was like, what is a podcast? I don't even know what that is. And frankly, I didn't care. Yeah. And I think nobody could have predicted it. Sarah Koenig and her team couldn't, pre- nobody could have predicted that it was overnight insanity. It was like mayhem. People were crazy about it. Yeah. And I know that obviously she came to you at some point and said she didn't find the smoking gun that you so desperately wanted. How did you feel in that moment? I mean, yes and no. Asia McLean is the smoking gun here. (laughs) If you are accused of a crime and you have an alibi who is consistent throughout the years, that's a smoking gun. That means you were somewhere else when the crime was committed. And we had lost Asia. Asia had refused to testify because the prosecutor in the case had basically tampered with her and talked her out of it. And Asia did not realize what had happened. And so it wasn't until Sarah Koenig spoke to her that Asia connected the dots and was like, crap, that prosecutor like tricked me basically. Yeah. So Asia was our smoking gun, but so much has come from it because Serial brought a lot of attention, although it didn't bring a ton of new information to the case, but it brought people to the case who just for the last five, six years have continued to investigate and find more evidence. You know, HBO did a documentary that came out almost two years ago now. I can't believe it. And that director had spent three years investigating the case and found new evidence. So really, it's done everything to help change the case. And we're getting ready to file a new appeal like this year now. Yeah. Wow. Serial and this story is what taught me what podcasts were. It's the reason I'm sitting in front of you today. I think it's fair to say that Serial launched a million podcast ships, really. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, 100%. I'm curious, obviously, there's been a whirlwind around efforts to appeal his conviction and a lot of disappointments. How have you continued to maintain hope in the face of, I'm sure, what you perceive to be as injustice and a wrongful conviction? Yeah, I mean, look, first, I think it's important. I didn't do work in wrongful conviction or innocence work, like, formally. To me, Adnan was a personal quest. Yeah. But in the last five, six years, I have been doing innocence work with a team of lawyers and we've covered 20 odd cases. And what I've come to realize is that in every such case, it takes literally 25 to 30 years to exonerate somebody. That is an average of how long it takes because the state will fight it. You can win an appeal. They'll appeal. That's what happened with not. He won two appeals. His conviction was overturned twice. And then the state appealed it to the next highest court. You know, they use our taxpayer dollars. They can just keep spending them, whereas we have to raise money. And then finally, we lost the last appeal by one vote. It was a panel of judges, four to three. 
And so we have to start over and we will because this is actually how it goes with all of these cases. The state just fights it and fights it. And I am glad that people, like people don't realize, people will say, oh, so what? Just appeal it as if an appeal happens like that. One appeal, one single appeal can take three to five years. Wow. And then you want to appeal it up higher and higher and higher. You know, what I've learned is that this is just how the court systems are. But also, I can't say that done well. I tried. I'm done. Good luck. <laughs> well, you can't just walk away like from a human being. I won't. And um, I'm not the only one. There are thousands of amazing advocates across the country doing the same kind of work. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. I do want to spend some time on that, on wrongful conviction and your path into the space, which I know has also been through your podcast, Undisclosed. Can yeah. you share a little bit about the genesis of that? Yeah. What happened was Serial was winding down and a friend of ours, I say ours, a friend of like the non-legal team, I guess you want to say defense team. He said, listen, you know, because every week when Serial would air, I would be like, okay, but they left this out. They didn't get this right. And I had all these thoughts and I would blog about it. And there were other lawyers also blogging about the case, logging like 30, 40 pages about the case. And so this guy was like, nobody is reading your blogs. I'm sorry. Great that you're putting all this out there, but nobody's reading it because they want to hear the story. They're used to hearing this. So just start your own podcast, take all the blogs you three lawyers have written and put them together. And we're like, you know what? Okay, we can do this. How hard could this be? And we originally started out thinking we we're just going to cover Adnan's case, do a, you know maybe 10, 15, 20 episodes on all the evidence that we thought was important that Serial didn't cover. And we did. And I mean, we sucked at it at first, but then we got some professional help, professional <laughs> editor and all this. And then advertisers wanted to sponsor, but it was an all volunteer effort. So we put all the money into Adnan's legal fund. And we raised, I think, over $700,000 for him that year. Wow. But then we started getting requests from innocence projects and defendants and families from across the country saying, can you also look at our case? Can you look at our wrongful conviction? And so in the last six years, we're talking about 24 cases now we've looked at and we've helped with 10 exonerations. Wow. That's crazy. I mean, you mentioned earlier that part of the reason you wanted to approach the media was their ability to be a little bit less tunnel vision and tap into more resources. Have you tried to acquire that mindset in addition to your lawyer mindset with this podcast? How does that work? Yeah, no, you got to wear different hats when we're investigating as journalists. If I show up and I knock on somebody's door and I'm like, hi, I'm a lawyer. Can I talk to you about something? It doesn't work. And also there's questions of privilege, right? Okay, if I'm here as a lawyer, is our conversation privileged or what is it? But no, we approach it as journalists who happen to be lawyers. So we understand the legal significance of something. So there, for, if I'm investigating a case, there might be something. And what funds all of the work is the fact that we turn it into this series on Undisclosed and we get advertisers and it's all funded. So for the defendant, it doesn't cost them anything to have a team of people working on the case. And most defendants can't afford that. But there might be something that we find that is legally very significant or something that we think could be significant in a future trial. So we won't air it because as lawyers, we can look at it and say, What's more important is to turn this over to the lawyer of the actual defendant and let them decide what to do with this information. Wow. Yeah. And so we've done that many times and working with innocence projects, you know, we are equipped to make the call about what's important from a legal perspective and where to draw the line. Yeah. But still still make the story. But yeah, you know, one thing we aren't very good at is like we don't have the storytelling skills of Sarah Koenig, right? So we've had to kind of learn. (laughs) learning. We're still lawyers and we talk like lawyers and write like lawyers, but 
I do know that a lot of lawyers and judges and law clerks listen to the show. (laughs) So at least we have that audience. Yeah. Wow. What have been some of the biggest learnings in terms of the American criminal justice system with your experience around Adnan's case and with these cases undisclosed? I think one of the most shocking things I've learned is how little access defendants have. I mean, imagine you've been arrested for a crime, you've been convicted of it, and you want to appeal it. So in order to appeal it, you have to kind of reinvestigate the crime. You have to reinvestigate the whole thing. You have to say, okay, well, what did the police have? Were there witnesses they interviewed that I have never seen reports from? What about the autopsy report? Don't you think a defendant should be entitled to see the autopsy report of a victim? A lot of states will say no. They won't give you the case files. So good luck getting your case files. All you're going to get is maybe what your lawyer got and what your lawyer has, the state decides what they get. So this whole process of disclosure, it is so frustrating to try to get the police files or the state attorney's files. And why that really angers me is because oftentimes you will find something called Brady evidence in those files. It's happened over and over. You spend 20 years trying to get the police files. Finally, you get the police file and there is a report in there that could help exonerate your client, but the police never turned it over to you. And it's their duty to do so. So that's called a Brady evidence. And when they refuse to do it and you have to discover it yourself, you have to get lucky and hope you can somehow some clerk is nice enough to give you a copy of the file. So I've been shocked at the lack of openness in terms of public documents. I've been shocked at how many courts would not allow recordings, audio recordings. These are publicly funded institutions. Every court proceeding should be audio documented, video documented. I'm shocked at how many police jurisdictions will not audio or video record interrogations. An officer spends 14 hours interrogating somebody and then writes up a page of notes about the interrogation. Gives you nothing. You have no idea. Was that person intimidated? Was that person hit, harmed, threatened? So it's a big black hole. If you had the opportunity to overhaul any parts of the system, what would it be? What would be the first thing you did? Oh, I mean, 100%, almost so much of the power lies with the district attorney. District attorneys or state's attorneys, basically the head prosecutor in any jurisdiction. They're more powerful than the police, than judges, than anybody. And so when you get progressive district attorneys, people who have, let's say, spent 20 years as a criminal defense attorney, now they're going to be on the other side. They're going to know who all the dirty cops are, who all the dirty prosecutors are, because their clients already suffered that. So electing the right district attorney is the fastest way to make some big, big changes. It's not the only way, but it would be the first thing I would recommend. And most people will, will have no idea who your district attorney is. Nobody, knows. <laughs> Nobody cares about their elections, but they're all elected officials. And most of them will get elected term after term after term, and they'll become judges. And forever, you have all these judges who are former prosecutors. Who do you think they're going to be aligned with in the yeah. courtroom? You know? The person that so, they've known for 20, 30 years. Yeah. Larry Krasner is somebody that I think people should look up. He is Philadelphia's district attorney right now. And he's a great example of what can happen when you get a progressive district attorney in office. It's super interesting. To that point, I mean, I know that you'd spoken publicly about how you were kept out of the courtroom in some of Anand's retrial processes by prosecutors. How did you feel in that instance being a lawyer yourself? You know, I had waited so long for that hearing to finally see that alibi witness testify after 20 years. And the lead prosecutor, who his name's Thiru Vignaraja, he had a personal beef with me because I attacked him online and he fully deserves it. He sequestered me the first day by making the argument to the judge that he might call me as a witness. Now, I knew he wasn't going to call me as a witness. He knew he wasn't going to call me as a witness, but it was his way 
of just messing with me. And I said, you know what? That's okay. With or without me, this proceeding is going to go fine because we have great lawyers. But since you're going to put me outside, I'm going to kick your ass on social media the entire five days of the hearing. And so I just said, I'm going to do the best with the situation. And I did. And I was able to tweet my way through five days of hearings and continue to decimate <laughs> that prosecutor. Wow. My guy, like, man, he's a mess. <laughs> wow. I love that. I got to tell you. I mean, to that end, social media has been a big part of your advocacy work. How have you navigated that? It just being such a challenging and complicated space. You live and you learn. I mean, look, lawyers are never taught in law school how to deal with media. We are taught not to deal with media, not to use media. But the truth is this. If you don't use media, the only entity that's creating a story about whatever your issue is or your client is, is the state, right? I mean, every time there's an arrest, the police give a statement, you know, this person's been arrested. There's only one narrative. You never have defense counsel come out and say, well, here's what actually happened. And I think we have been really behind the ball in learning to create stories for advocacy. As an advocate, I think a lot of advocacy fails because we are poor storytellers. I really learned actually from Serial, the power of storytelling. And social media is so easy. You can reach so many, like hundreds of thousands or millions of people quickly. It's an incredible tool if you use it right. It can also completely destroy your career. So you have to be careful. <laughs> you know, luckily for me, look, Adnan's lawyer is not going to tweet the things I'm going to tweet. I have my role and his lawyer has their role. And we both know what that role is. And yeah. if I was representing Adon myself, I wouldn't be tweeting about it the way I was. So you have to know where to draw the lines. But now I think there are a couple of emerging programs that are trying to teach lawyers how to use social media to their advantage and how to create movements and get support around them. But it's been a tremendous tool for fundraising for Adon and also for getting awareness about all the other defendants that we've covered on Undisclosed. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. I mean, I think it's super interesting because even last summer with Black Lives Matter and the protests that were happening, it proved the case that you have to democratize access to information because, yeah. you know, the quote that everyone says, history is written by the winners. A lot of history has yeah. been whitewashed in the United States. And I think social media is providing the grounds to rewrite these narratives yeah. with varied perspectives and truth yeah. behind them. I mean, the best story wins. Yeah. In the media, in the courtroom, I don't care where, the best story wins, simple as that. Yeah. So, I mean, you're obviously still in touch with Adnan. You wrote a book about it. What has it been like having this be a part of your life for the last 30 years? Yeah. He'll be incarcerated, I think it's 22 years this March or end of February, rather. It's exhausting. I can't wait until the day I don't have to do it anymore. You know, frankly, this past few months, I've started working with a coalition also to do some advocacy in Maryland around champion. Maryland is one of the few states that still allows juveniles to get life sentences, even though the US Supreme Court outlawed it eight years ago. So, you know, that's one more kind of thing that I have to think about is political movement and how do you lobby legislators? And I continue to be angry about it and tired of it. But luckily, we have a great team. And so I'm not doing it alone now, which it felt like I was for many years. I don't know. I mean, like you just one foot in front of the other, right? And you got to take sometimes. And when Adnan's appeal was denied a couple of years ago, it was a real blow to us. I had to step away for about six months. For six months, I just couldn't function. I couldn't think about it. It was just really traumatic for all of us. And it took about six months to regroup and be like, okay, now what? Yeah. Let's start over. And so we're starting over. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you being so willing to talk about it. And it is like these something that's a podcast that many of us listen to is a big part of your life. 
And I think it's easy to forget that sometimes. I'm curious, you obviously have this massive media hat that you wear as a podcaster and writer. Can you speak a little bit to some of your next few projects coming up, in particular, Fatty Fatty Boom Boom and and some of these other things? (laughs) Yeah, you know, so what happened was literally as soon as a non-story was published, my publisher was like, okay, we want you to give us another book. And I was like, my head was reeling. And I <laughs> I was like, I don't know what to write about. I need some time. And then I ended up having a baby around the same time. And I said, well, a non-story was a really tough book to write because what I did was a chronology of the entire case, which means I had to refer back to tens of thousands of documents to make sure I got the sequence of events right, all of the different facts right. It was very research heavy. And I didn't have a research assistant. It was just me. So I said, you know, I don't have it in me emotionally to write something like that. And I kept saying to my agent, can I just write a novel or something? And she's like, no, no, they don't want a novel. They want something nonfiction. And I'm like, what can I write that's nonfiction that's not heavy? Heavy. And also I would have to research a lot. We bandied about the idea of like a memoir-ish. And I didn't want to write a memoir as an American Muslim in the post 9-11. I just couldn't deal with the heaviness of it. So I decided to go with this story because wait as an issue, it has been like a constant companion my whole life. I've always had a weight problem, according to my family and my entire community. (laughs) I've just struggled with it for my 46 years. And so Fatty Fatty Boom Boom was a nickname, one of many nicknames I had as a child. And I have lots of evidence from my childhood to prove that I deserved it. So I said, you know, at the same time, though, I cook a lot, I entertain a lot. And you know how our communities are, we love to eat and feed people. So your parents could be like, you need to lose 20 pounds, but you must finish everything on your plate. (laughs) Sounds exactly right. (laughs) Yeah. So I was like, you know what? This can be easy to do, although it wasn't emotionally as easy as I thought, but lighthearted and I'll put some recipes in it. It'll just be more of a fun write. So that's what I'm almost done with right now. It should, I'm not sure. I think their publisher's thinking this fall it'll come out. Wow. And it's completely disconnected from my professional work, but it's very much a part of my personal day-to-day life. Wow. That's super interesting because, yeah, it obviously is such a departure from other things and works that you've produced, but it sounds really interesting. We're all human. We have our personal lives. There isn't a day that my husband and I aren't like, should we eat carbs? Should we not eat carbs? (laughs) (laughs) Going through the exact same process, especially uh, in the middle of a pandemic, that becomes a lot more challenging. I mean, I feel like you're always up to something like developing content for a podcast, social media advocacy, empowering American Muslim communities. Do you ever get free time? What do you like to do? You know, the kind of sad thing is like in my free time, I like to watch British mystery dramas or read mystery books. I feel like I have landed where my natural interests always were. I grew up reading a lot of Agatha Christie and Nancy Drew, and I keep getting drawn to those issues. And of course, cookbooks and food stuff. So even in my free time, I'm thinking about crime and murder and mysteries. (laughs) Honestly, most of our cases, there is the aspect of trying to give justice to somebody who's been wrongfully convicted. But it also, every one of these cases is a murder mystery. That means somebody got away with murder and you have to try to figure that out. And that's kind of a little bit of the fun part. Makes sense that that's what's drawn you to it from childhood. I mean, I I read the Nancy Drew books religiously as a kid, so I totally know where <laughs> you're coming from. Yeah. You've obviously accomplished so much in your life in a way that touches people in a very real way. What is your proudest moment or contribution thus far? Oh my gosh. I don't think I've hit it. I think it'll be when Adon finally comes home. Wow. I mean, I know people think the whole Adon thing has been such a success, but not when he's behind bars. Yeah. Kind of a failure. So that will be my proudest moment. It's going to happen. I'm putting it out in the universe. It's going to happen. So 
it is yet to come. Yeah, I'd be curious to hear. I mean, you mentioned in the beginning how tight knit some of the Muslim communities and South Asian communities that you participated in yeah. when you first came here. What has been the impact on your community following this case for the past number of years? The whole thing back in 99 was really traumatic for the community. Like this kind of stuff does not happen in our communities. I mean, a kid getting arrested for anything would be shocking, but murder. I mean, like, are you kidding me? Unheard of. And then Adnan, everybody loved him. He's just a sweet kid. So it was a big shock and people rallied around him, the family for a number of years. But then when he got convicted and sent away, I think everybody just kind of faded away because they just didn't know what to do with it. We have to realize as we're talking about a non-generation, they were mostly kids. So they didn't attend the trial because they're in school. The parents, many of them are immigrants. They don't exactly know what's going on, but also they couldn't attend the trial because they're at work. So people don't really know in the community why he was convicted, but they just know he was convicted. And for most of them, they feel like this system gets it right. So if they convicted him, it couldn't be that it was something wrong there. So a lot of them faded away, I think, just because they thought, well, I guess he did it. And he just became like an entity that didn't exist. His parents stopped mentioning him. His father kind of became a hermit. I mean, what Serial did was allow his family and Adnan to come back into the community and for the community to really embrace them wow. and step up. And all those young kids who were his peers are now adults and professionals. So they really stepped up. They've donated and they've come back into it with full force, which has been wonderful to see. It was hard on Adnan to lose everybody really at the time. Yeah. Well, I'm sure it's been nice for him to have you in his life all these years. Yeah. I mean, my brother's always been there for him, my family. Like my mother is the only one, I think the whole community, because I know a lot of the other moms said, do not keep ties with this guy who's in prison. Because that's just how we are as a community. Yeah. Like, you know, so don't take his collect calls. Do not be in contact. What if that gets you in trouble? And my mother was like, hell no. We are going to abandon the Don. And my mom's really fearless in that way. So that's incredible. So, um, she has a lot to do with us really remaining by his side. Yeah. Being someone that's maintained so much conviction in your beliefs and is clearly so resilient, what advice do you have for young South Asians, young Muslim Americans who in some ways, seek to emulate the career and life that you've built? Yeah, you know, look, my advice, first of all, it's been incredible to watch Biden's administration appoint so many South Asians and yes. Muslims incredible posts. We already are doing amazing things. We have some of the most talented professionals and creative minds. My advice to folks who are thinking more in lines of activism and advocacy is that give yourself time to really develop substantive knowledge and skills in a field before you go out and start advocating about things. One of the things that bothers me is when folks want to become activists or advocates on something that they themselves don't have a lot of firsthand experience with, right? Social media is a tool to raise awareness on issues that you already have some substantive experience in. Like get your hands dirty, put in five, 10 years of actual work on the ground before you become an activist for this, that, or the other. Understand the actual issues and who they impact. DC when I started working in national security policy, what I realized was DC is full of policymakers who want to make policy about issues they know nothing about. They've never experienced the issues that they're making policies about, impact communities that they have never communicated with. They're just so detached from the actual policymaking. And so, you know, I think just put in time, get real life experience before you want to position yourself as a leader on certain issues. And the other thing is narrow your focus. Don't try to do everything. I know it looks like you want to, but one thing will evolve into another. It just naturally does. But 
be really good at a couple of things. Yeah. It's better than being eh, on like 20 things. things. Yeah. I think that's super interesting. And I don't know if it's the fact that we're a little bit of the social media generation or yeah. what else it is, but I even feel sometimes pressure to accelerate my career. And I'm like, yeah. I'm so early. I've barely been working two full years. I want to develop expertise and specialize in something before I try and be you know, the there catch all is. voice on it. Yeah. There's a lot of pressure, but you know, it's mostly because people on social media are pretending to be what they aren't. Yeah. And it's a facade. So if you even look at, for example, the amazing appointees in the Biden administration, many of them are people we've never heard of. Yeah. But they've got like 15 years of incredible work that they've already done in law or politics, or whatever. So keep your head down and be somebody that really knows their shit. Yeah. I think that's really great advice. The last thing I'm curious about is, again, you have so many projects underway and have worked on so much in the past. What's next for you? I mean, look, I have a new case that I'll start investigating that I have begun investigating out of New Hampshire this year. An innocence case, which is going to be a tough one to do, especially with COVID. It's hard to investigate when you've got COVID. Yeah. And you have to take all the protocols. So that's going to be much of my year. I have to finish up my book. I did a storytelling podcast last year just as a fun creative project called Hidden Gin. Again, totally unrelated to any of my serious professional work, but it was something I wanted to do in partnership with a friend of mine, Aaron Mankey, who does the podcast called Lore about folklore. So that was fun to do. And the media company, iHeartMedia, wants me to do a second season. So we'll see about that. I'm just going to try to keep my head above water, but I'm going to be occupied a lot with the non's new appeal, I'm sure. Yeah. This year. I'm hoping early summer, late spring, we'll be filing it. Wow. Well, best of luck on that and all your other endeavors. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. This is amazing, Rabia. Really appreciate I had a great it. Conversation. Thank you so much, Simi, and good luck to all your future endeavors. And thank you for highlighting the folks in our community doing cool things. Yeah, of course. Really appreciate your time. This is a podcast from Trailblazers Media. For more content on South Asian trailblazing, follow us at South Asian Trailblazers on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you.